with my guest, Lori Bush. She was the president and CEO of Rodan and Fields for eight years, and she literally led the launch that took the company from startup to the billion dollar mark. And she was so open and so uh, generous sharing business information and her story about being in the beauty industry and at a very different aspect of the beauty industry than we're used to hearing from like the CEO level. So this was a great show, super interesting. If you stay tuned and listen to the end, she gave some incredible insights on how to run a business. And it's funny because my girls in the beauty biz club, the expansion level, I told them that I had the opportunity to interview Lori Bush today, and they gave me some questions to ask about growing a, a, a beauty brand. And Lori gave some great tips. So stay tuned, enjoy the show, and let me know what you think. I'm going to post this inside the Beauty and Success Launchpad, and I'd love to hear your feedback. Also, don't forget, March 15th, I still have a few spots open. Uh, you can go to lauricrete.com. It's the live I call it a boutique business seminar that I will be hosting in Las Vegas, and we're going to have a blast together. We're going to get you set up to create beauty, success, become booked perfectly and profitably in 2020, and I would love to have you join me. So again, that is at lauricrete.com. But for now, go ahead and tune into Lori's episode. I know you're going to enjoy it. And welcome to the Beauty Biz Show. I'm your host, Lori Crete. I'm a licensed esthetician, spa owner, industry consultant, speaker, and journalist, and the founder of the Beauty Biz Club, which is the only professional success based society designed to dramatically up your bookings, increase your profits, and provide you with industry specific resources that are needed to succeed. If you'd like to know more about how you can become a member of the Beauty Biz Club, please visit beautybizclub.com. Now I invite you to join me as I feature inspirational messages from industry gurus and practical tips to tap into your best success. Stay tuned for some serious Beauty Biz entertainment. everybody and welcome to the Beauty Biz Show. Today I have a really exciting guest for you and her name is Lori Bush and Lori, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here, Lori. So excited to have you. I know you were just sharing with me that you're kind of in a makeshift office right now. Where are you actually located? I am in the financial district of San Francisco, California. Okay, San Fran, because I saw, and we'll talk about this later in the show, that you do some work with Dr. Chopra, who is here in the desert, which is actually where I live. Yes, he has offices both in Beverly Hills and the Palm Springs, Palm Desert area. So do you know him personally? I don't know him personally. I've done stuff with his partner from the doctors, and now his name is slipping Oh my gosh, who's the doctor? Drew, Drew Orden. Thank you, Dr. Orden. Andrew Orden. <laughs> I've done TV commercials mm-hmm. with him before, yeah. but I have not met Chopra, but a lot of my clients, I still work in the treatment room as an esthetician. A lot of my clients speak very highly of him. He's amazing and has the most incredible bedside manner, actually even made a house call for me. So my this business actually evolved from me being one of his patients. Oh, 
you're kidding. In Beverly Hills? Is that where you used to see him? Yes, but I was not an aesthetic patient. I was a breast cancer patient. I read that and I want to talk about that too. I'm actually an oncology certified esthetician. So I always like to hear that story because I feel like it's part of a woman's life that beats you up a little bit and then seems to power you up a lot. So um, do you want me to just jump in yeah, there? I can yeah, give you a little in. bit of the backstory. It's um, sort of an unexpected thing. And so we're sort of jumping way ahead in terms of where I thought the conversation was going to start today, but that's great. So I had made a decision to retire from active management in the 2015-2016 timeframe along with my husband. Amazing career thinking that I would just kind of downshift, do boards, advisory work. I also, I live on a vineyard in California wine country. I own a restaurant that my stepson runs. So, you know, it was just kind of shifting into this new place, but about 18 months, almost exactly 18 months into my, and I'm using air quotes, retirement, because I stayed very active in different aspects of business, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Little tumor, I found it myself makes a big case for doing self-exams, which I recommend to everybody. I did as a matter of habit, because way back in my Neutrogena days, I actually did a public service advertising campaign about breast self-exams to give women more opportunities for different treatment options with early detection. So I was just a habit of doing it. Mammography had missed it. And I found this little tumor thinking it was going to be a cyst, and lo and behold, it was a tumor, a breast cancer tumor. I always thought I was the healthiest person in the world, and apparently cancer gets you even when you're healthy, So, which also ultimately leads to this company, Sylvasa, that I'll share a little bit more. But this is how I met Ritu Chopra, Dr. Chopra, is I happened to, I was work, I was just starting on a project with Dr. Paul Nassif. Do you know Dr. Nassif? Oh, yeah. The, Botched. Surgeon on the TV show, Botched, yes. And we were just innovating some ideas around beauty, skincare, and it's just getting going on the project, and I get this diagnosis. And so I was only telling people who needed to know at that point in time. I was frightened but because I didn't know what my staging was and what was coming. So I was on the phone with Dr. Nassif, with Paul, And I said, look, I've got to tell you something. I don't know what my next number of weeks, months, years are going to look like because I just got this diagnosis. And it happened to be on a Saturday that I got the diagnosis. I said, you know, I've got a few questions. Can you you answer for me about reconstructive surgery and what are the sort of things I should need to know? And he said, well, for that, you need to talk to my friend, Dr. Christy Funk. She is the breast surgeon that did the surgeries on several very well-known celebrities who have spoken about it publicly. She's on Good Morning America all the time. She's the go-to person. Much to my surprise, Christy Funk actually called me that same day and said, let's, you know, to step away from the internet, let me talk you off the ledge. And I ultimately decided to go through my treatment with her. And it's Dr. Ritu Chopra who does all of her or most of her reconstructions that are associated with when she does the mastectomies. So I started going through this reconstructive process with Dr. Chopra, and we started having some very interesting conversations around the skincare industry because he had ideas of where there were gaps in the industry. But the funny part about the conversations is 
they would happen while he was examining my breasts as I'm going through this reconstructive process. So it was, it was rather awkward. And there was one point I actually, when we really started getting in earnest conceiving this business, I had to ask him one day, can we just wait until I put my clothes on before we continue this conversation? Because it was a day at the office for him, but it was very weird for me. Oh my goodness. Talk about connecting on a deep level with another human being. <laughs> You build the trust right away. Well, I I think that we could probably go in reverse now and then come full circle. And this is actually a really great way to start the podcast, you sharing something that I'm sure was such a vulnerable time in your life. Yeah, and it was a it was a time of vulnerability. It ended up being quite beautiful because I learned a lot. And as I said, I thought I was the healthiest person in the world, but what I didn't really appreciate is I wasn't necessarily living and leading the most healthy of lifestyles. Um, And a lot of it just related to the amount of stress that I allowed in my life and the way I did or didn't deal with it. Ooh, well, maybe you can finish up today telling us how you do process stress in a healthier way now, because I think most women need to hear that. We're trying to do a lot of different things very, very much at the epicenter of Silvasa, which is the idea of integrative beauty. Just as you think of integrative medicine, bringing together the mind, body, spirit, integrative beauty, same idea. And it all really boils down to stress and the, its impact at the cellular level on, on our well-being. Yeah. Uh, stress trumps all and can steal your beauty quickly, I think. (laughs) The fact that you look and feel beautiful. One of the things that I couldn't wait to chat with you about was how you stepped into Rodan and Fields and just built this empire so quickly. So I'm excited to chat with you about that because it's really impressive what you did. But let's go back to maybe even like, how did you find your way? I know you said you were in the medical, like technical type industry Mm -hmm. when you first got out of college? Is that where you thought you were headed? Yeah. Well, you know, when I started my college um, journey, undergraduate, I, like most of my freshman class at Ohio State that year, I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio. I thought I was going to be a doctor. I really wanted to be a genetics counselor for a number of reasons. But that's where I started. And But I ultimately realized that I didn't really want to spend my life in hospitals and in medicine. So I switched to medical technology to sort of sort things through, but to know that I could get a job when I graduated. It was kind of important to my parents at the time that I had a degree that actually would give me a a vocation. And while I was going through the medical technology program at Ohio State, I was part of a a competitive team. They called it the um, student bowl team, kind of an academic challenge for medical technology students. What medical technology is, is laboratory science as it relates to medicine. Today, it's it's even called something different at Ohio State and other schools. It's laboratory medicine as opposed to medical technology. But basically doing the lab work and the diagnostics. And so while I was in school, I was on this competitive team and my team won at the state level in Ohio and we went on to the regional level. And one of the judges was a very renowned pathologist physician in this very specialized area of of laboratory science in the area of blood clotting and hematology. And he recruited me to come work for him. And while I was working with him, I had an opportunity to be very 
intrapreneurial, if you will, within this laboratory in deciding what sort of tests that we needed to set up for our laboratory and how we would then monetize those tests. And one of the ways we monetized them was doing clinical trials for different companies that were developing products. And so very, very early on in my career, kind of through the back door, I got into product development in some very interesting ways. And one of the companies that I was doing a clinical trial for ended up hiring me. And I went and started my career in commerce and business in the area of product development for diagnostic medicine. And that was probably the thing that most materially set me up for everything else that's happened since then. Because I came into this little company I was starting with with a product idea, and nobody stopped me. So it turns out I didn't need a lot of capital investment. I was dabbling at night, and I had this idea. I was able to execute it, and we launched a product. I think I was 24 years old at the time, but we launched a product that actually became an industry standard in the area of laboratory science. And so I got you know, all these accolades, but more importantly, it was this incredible education of taking something from a concept all the way to market. At 24 years old. At 24 years old, and also seeing that it was making an impact in my my area of business, in my area of science, but most importantly, in people's lives. I did something that really affected people's lives. And I remember one of the engineers who was at the company watching me at the time, he's kind of observing me sitting back one day, and he, he says, just kind of casually, he goes, you know what, I think you're going to be successful at this. He goes, because you're too dumb to know that what you're doing is really hard. <laughs> I thought it was kind of a funny comment, but you know what? Backhanded compliments. <laughs> it was, but it was it was sweet and it was cute. And it, it really struck me that, you know, nobody said this is really hard or you need permission and nobody stopped me. And once you have that experience and you've probably experienced it yourself, Lori, just having something that you built, you made and it made a difference. You need to do it again. And you need to do it again, and you need to do it again. So that's sort of how I, I started down this path of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial appetite, if you will, from a career perspective. Now, how do you how transition? I get to yeah, yeah, beauty, like because it's well, it, as much as maybe the listener or myself thinks that it's a polar opposite, I bet you it's really not. Well, you know, I came in through the back door in a way. And what happened is I was at a clinical pathology conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. So this is one of the things that didn't stay in Vegas. <laughs> I was waiting for an elevator and this man started talking to me. And the next thing I knew, the same man showed up in Philadelphia where I was living at the time the next the next week. And he just kept showing up. And the next thing I knew, I was getting calls from recruiters in the Twin Cities area because that's where he lived. So he basically had headhunters recruiting me to move to Minnesota. And that now 30 some odd years later, that's my husband, Steve. So when I started looking for positions to be close to this man that I would eventually marry because I met him in an elevator in Las Vegas, I started recruiting for different medical companies in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. 
And there was most of the positions I was being recruited for were in the cardiovascular area because that's really big in the Twin Cities. But there was a company called Minnetonka Corporation. And Minnetonka was known at the time for soft soap and checkup toothpaste and Calvin Klein Cosmetics. Oh, I didn't even know they had cosmetics. I had the jeans, didn't know they did cosmetics. Yeah, no, it's, so it would get confused with moccasins and other things. But this particular Minnetonka was personal care and beauty brands and home fragrances. And they owned Calvin Klein at the time. And they had a skincare product that they wanted to market through doctors. It was a wart treatment product. And they didn't know the difference really between diagnostics and pharmaceuticals and medical supplies. So they hired me. And I suddenly found myself running this little medical business inside a wonderful consumer products company that was largely in the beauty and cosmetics space. So it was amazing for me in terms of being in this ecosystem that was just so creative and so different. I was the wart queen. Somebody actually put (laughs) a sign on my door that called me the wart queen, but eventually launched as a prescription product, became an over-the-counter product. And we had other over-the-counter skincare products that were considered more medical and ethical. But you started getting, again, into that business model and that ecosystem. Well, my division got sold, and then I was acquired by Neutrogena, me personally, not my company, And my role at Neutrogena was effectively to create the number one dermatology recommended claim for Neutrogena products. So I would market Neutrogena products for recommendation by dermatologists. And so I got very deep into skincare that way. And guess who I met during that experience? Dr. Katie Rodan and Dr. Kathy Fields. Okay. So that's how that relationship started. And they brought the idea of proactive, the acne product to Neutrogena. And that's where they started. They had this idea for an acne product. Neutrogena was the number one dermatology recommended skincare brand. So logically we would be the ones to market proactive. And at the time, the... The president of Neutrogena said to them, you know, great idea. I loved them. I so wanted to do something with them. And we started talking about it. And most of our sales were through drugstores and mass merchandisers. And the president of the company said to them, how are we going to put this regimen onto a drugstore shelf next to our $5.95 spot treatments? And what he literally is the verbatim, what he said is, you girls belong on TV. Mm. You should do an infomercial. Not what they wanted to hear at the time, but ended up taking that advice and connected with Guthy Ranker, launched Proactive as an infomercial, wildly successful, and arguably created what we know today as the acne category in the United States, because it was very different before Proactive. I agree, you know, and I have to tell you a quick story. When you say you love those women behind proactive, I came up with a solution for acne because I consider myself to be the front line of the army, right? I'm touching faces all day long. And I remember this. I was kind of a new esthetician. I sent Katie Rodan. I literally sent her a card 
to her dermatology office, just like throwing things out there. And she, one day I got a phone call like three weeks later and it was Katie on the phone. She set up a meeting for me to go into Guthy Ranker. And I thought, oh my God, I'd not been supported by another successful woman that way until her. Well, you know, I think that was a very telling in terms of how Rodan and Fields came to be because Rodan and Fields had two aspects to the business. Number one, this idea of almost democratizing dermatology and bringing that dermatology combination therapy, multi-med therapy to consumers in, in a different way, but also empowering women to build businesses around this portfolio of products and and the connections to the know-how and the resources to start a business at virtually no cost. So, you know, this was something that I think Katie really, uh, both Katie and Kathy truly appreciated, you know, how empowering it was to to take this entrepreneurial um, leap and see the success in it. And they really wanted to empower others in the same way. So did you end up leaving Neutrogena and then find your way to them or? So what, it was a little more circuitous than that. So they went to Guthy Ranker, launched Proactive. We were cheerleaders for them from Neutrogena. And it, it was in fairly short order that the revenue of Proactive was greater than the revenue of Neutrogena at one point in time. It happened that fast for them because they were really, it wasn't just about the products. The products were amazing, but more importantly, they found a way to connect with people on a very personal level. And, you know, that's so important in, you know, any aspect when you're in this kind of high touch beauty category, how you really connect with people. Certainly it's changed dramatically in recent years because of social media, but this aspect of really coming into people's homes and, and touching them. So anyway, they did this. I ended up, so Neutrogena had been acquired by Johnson & Johnson. It's a Johnson & Johnson portfolio company. And I was invited to set up an innovation incubator at the consumer company headquarters for J&J in New Jersey for all of the different skincare businesses. So I worked with Rock out of France and the Johnson's brand out of the U.S. and Clean and Clear and Neutrogena and uh, Aveeno. We acquired Aveeno at that point in time. So I was really getting to touch all of these different brands, but I was running the innovation aspect of it, bringing in different new ingredients, working with the scientists at J&J to identify new approaches to treating skin. And it was during that time Katie and Kathy came back to me and they had the idea for what ultimately became Rodan and Fields. And we talked about it again on behalf of Johnson and Johnson. And it was another situation where you really need to match up the way you communicate with people with what the product is. It really needs to be almost precision aligned. So you can have the best idea, but if you don't have the right way to market it, you're not going to go anywhere. So we started talking about the idea in the context of Johnson and Johnson, and it just, it didn't seem like it was going to work at J&J in the class of trade. At this time, Johnson and Johnson had acquired Proactive. Is that correct? No, no, they they never, they never owned Proactive. So at this particular time, Proactive was still being marketed by Guthy Ranker. The doctors were still the founders and the, the licensors of it and on TV doing the infomercials. 
in anti-aging skincare, they wanted to start the company separate from Guthy Ranker and and do it a different way. So they came back to us and we had the conversation. I got together with my head of business development and said, you know, I'm kind of stuck because frankly, some of the very coolest things we were doing at Johnson and Johnson weren't making it necessarily into the marketplace because our, our target customer was pretty much in the mass market. And so there are some things that might be too sophisticated to market through a, a drugstore or through Walmart. There are other things that are just going to be too expensive to market through those marketing channels. And so I got together with my head of business development saying, we have some really cool ideas that just aren't making it into the marketplace. And she said to me, you know, we should be thinking about, and I said, oh, and, and Dr. Katie Rodan and Kathy Fields are back to, you know, wanting to do something in this anti-aging space. I would love to work with them. And she said, you know, they should be thinking about direct selling. And so should we. I said, direct selling, like, like Avon, I, you know, when I say that, it's kind of funny now because I was actually the chairman of Avon not too long ago. But at that point in time, I didn't really understand that channel, that class of trade. And so I actually started researching direct selling as a marketing channel, both for what would ultimately become Rodan and Fields, but more importantly for Johnson and Johnson to have this marketplace incubator for different product ideas. And while I was doing that, I ended up getting recruited by New Skin. And I went to, to New Skin, started that journey. In the meantime, Doctors Rodan and Doctors Field launched Rodan and Fields, what was called at the time Rodan and Fields Dermatologist, into the department store channel. And we're almost immediately acquired by Estee Lauder. Okay, that's the maybe the so fan. there we go. So it's a it's a long journey, and finally, after so many years of knowing them and working together, I I was at New Skin for a number of years, loved it, had an amazing experience there, but because of a strategic direction the company was going, I decided it was a good time for me to exit, and I I was literally a week out from my, I was the president of the New Skin division of New Skin, and I was about a week out of that. And just kind of trying to, I was actually even thinking of going to law school of all crazy things. And I was doing some consulting work for a company that makes biomimetic peptides for skincare and dermatology. And I as a favor to them, picked up the phone to call Katie Rodan to see if we could talk about using these peptides in proactive. And before I even got the words out of my mouth, she said, we were just talking about you. Ah, divine timing. Yes. I, I can't believe you called me now. Can you get to New York and meet with us at Estee Lauder? We want to talk about doing a pivot into direct selling. So I ended up getting on a plane, meeting with William Lauder. We had a really great discussion about it, but ultimately the conclusion was that Estee Lauder didn't really have the infrastructure to do direct selling, didn't really understand it, because it is a completely different world than department store, premium branding exercises. And so the doctors asked me if they bought the company back, if I would do the pivot and basically restart the company in the social selling channel. That's how we got there. Oh so, my gosh. 
Well, so we finally lined up and it was incredible. Not as much of an overnight success as maybe it sounds like from the outside world. You know, we had a a lot of learning the first couple of years, but ultimately everything just worked out amazingly, including the kind of women who joined as what I like to think of as micro entrepreneurs starting their own business based on the Rodan and Fields model. Well, I want to, this is what I've been dying to pick your brain about because I have in my notes, you took it quickly from startup to 600 million, but it was actually more than that billion dollar mark, correct? Yeah. So the the company, what they've reported, because, you know, I, I know the exact numbers, but what's publicly reported. So the year I retired was the first, I retired in January of 2016. In 2016, they crossed the billion dollar revenue rate. So yeah, that was pretty amazing to, in the course of eight years, go from effectively startup to over a billion in revenue. Especially when you said you didn't have a whole lot of experience. You had done research, but not a whole lot of experience doing the direct sales. Well, actually for me, I did. It was NewSkin. I had that six-year stint at NewSkin and it was such a learning curve. So Lauder did not have the experience. That's why... That's why they, the doctors asked me if they bought the company back, if I could do the pivot into direct selling, because it's a very, very different approach to business. Okay. Well, can I just dive in and pick your brain? Because I have this one group of gals there in my higher level mastermind group, and they have given me questions for you. They can't wait to learn from you. So (laughs) then we're going to dive into what you're doing today because all of it's so interesting, but I am just curious. Well, first of all, whoever your PR rep is, is awesome because he sent me something with the headline that said the hundred million that made pigs fly subject, line, <laughs> which made me open it. Will you tell me what that's about? <laughs> yeah, no, that's so one of the things, you know, when you're building a company, the culture of the company is so important. And especially when you're a startup and you're asking people to, you know, take this leap of faith with you and you're paying below market value for your leadership team and nobody's earning bonuses the first years and you need really great talent, but people who are working with purpose. So one of the things that we really made a point to do is find ways to celebrate every possible success in fun and differentiated ways that maybe weren't, you know, the big dollar bonuses that some of these people could have been earning by working by it for a more established, larger company at the time. So it was always finding funny ways to do things. We launched as a direct selling business in 2008. And I would say it was in 2010, we really started finding our our legs, if you will. We were, we were starting to see some momentum, find ways to just surprise and delight people within the company and within the customer base. So it was, um, I happened to be our fourth anniversary and I came into the office that morning and we had just the month before hit the hundred million dollar run rate. And I came into the office that morning and on our internal social site, I, I put a funny little caption that said, happy Happy Rodan anniversary, everybody. They said we'd hit the $100 million run rate in four years when pigs fly. 
And then later that day, I had my 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 executive team. We all went running through the building with these little flying pigs, these boomerang pigs that oinked when you shot them. And we went shooting them around the company. And, you know, that became one of the stories that, you know, creating the soul of your business, a lot of it is just, you know, rem- remembering the, the, the things you went through together, the trials, the tribulations, the joys, the celebrations, and creating stories that people can continue to tell through the years. So that was one of my favorite ones was shooting flying pigs. The myths and legends, right, that it takes to get a startup. I love that you said surprise and delight because I actually teach a class on that. Like if you can surprise and delight your staff and your consumers, you're way ahead of your competition. That's not focusing on things that way. So one of the other questions I had for you, and maybe this is the same thing. So many gals right now that I know, beauty entrepreneurs, beauty professionals are trying to build a solid team. And there was something that I found when researching your resume, so to speak, somebody talked about the soul searching exercise that you use to help leaders find their values. I would love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, that started really early on. So the chairman of Rodan and Fields was Katie Rodan's husband, Amnon Rodan. And he had a friend, has a friend, Dr. David Zenoff, who is a corporate consultant who is writing a book about the soul of the company and talking about how the the more successful companies were companies that really operated with meaning and purpose. They really understood themselves what they cared deeply about. And as he was writing this book, and the book, and it's out there now, called The Soul of a Company by Dr. David Zenoff, he was writing about more established companies like Levi Strauss and Williams-Sonoma and even SFO Airport, and how these companies worked to really create this this soul that, that generally started with the employees. Everybody you know, shared this purpose. Amnon suggested to him that he should really have within the book a company that was really just getting going to talk about how you how you create that soul, how that soul comes together. And we became the case study for that. So in the process of writing the chapter for the book about the startup and the soul of a startup, he offered more or less as a quid pro quo to come in and work with my top team to help really for us to, to galvanize and, and understand who we were, not just have it be sort of fatalistic, but really be very intentional about what was important in our business. And it was a funny time because we were, you know, the startup, we were very, very lean in terms of the number of people working with us. We were really about supporting our our customers, our consultants in the field. And to take time out for what some people felt like was, you know, it was really a mindfulness exercise back then. But, you know, a People felt that it was a soft exercise and we had hard work to do, really important business that needed to be done. But we did it. We did the exercises and they were so important in in the long run for how we approached the business. So as, as we were building our team, the values that ended up coming out of that soul searching exercise and really this, uh, this taking some time out to understand how we operated, what the sort of the, the business values were that we valued 
and how they needed to be implemented and executed. I really feel that that was a huge part of the the success of the company. And it was things like, you know, through observation, we realized that, you know, we, we could basically come through anything when there was complete transparency and we collaborated or swarmed around something. So collaboration and transparency became attributes that we rewarded and valued. And well, you would think, well, of course, that's that's simple, but this aspect of transparency requires a level of vulnerability in trusting your your fellow workers. And so being able to take almost any situation and identify how we were going to approach it and these values. Other values were things like our approach, our unique approach to innovation and how we approached innovation, integrative Medici effect, for instance. So what was, if you had to say the one thing that surprised you or shocked you the most from that soul searching exercise, was there something that you heard and you go, oh my gosh, never even occurred to me? You know, I think the thing that came out of the soul searching exercise is this element of how important that sort of tribal knowledge and that DNA is in terms of the long run and the long term of the business. And you would start, it became really important as we started growing, where when you start to realize that you can't have necessarily the one-on-one relationships with every single person in the company that were, were so material in the early days, but how do you maintain that sort of startup, that startup passion as you start to grow and scale. What I found out really early on that I didn't see coming is that there were people who were almost afraid of growing because they were going to lose what made the company special. And I've so I've heard so many CEOs say that. And founders. Yeah, and so so I used to do these monthly town hall meetings that had everybody in the company involved as we grew. And we did two things during those town hall meetings. I would It was oftentimes just sharing what was going on in the business. But every town hall meeting had whoever was celebrating an anniversary at the company stood up and told one of their favorite stories, their favorite Rodan and Fields moments. Eventually it got so big that we actually started producing videos around them and, and distributing them because we couldn't fit them all into one session after a while. But people would give a lot of thought to what they were going to share with the group and had a lot of fun producing those little videos around their favorite moments. Some of them got extraordinarily creative. The other thing we did whenever anybody new started in the company, they shared something interesting about themselves that you wouldn't otherwise know. And then what we had was in the elevator lobbies of the building, we had this, this loop where there were all the fun facts about our employees constantly looping there so that people were still feeling this sense of connectivity, but we had to find ways to do that as we got larger. Because otherwise, it starts to become impersonal and you start to repeat the mistakes that you learned from years of years before because people start becoming siloed. So this aspect of really creating the, the storytelling aspect of the business was probably the biggest aha moment. So important. I love it. And I love that you use the term tribal knowledge because it just is a beautiful way to get everybody on the same page and operating with the same mission. I've seen Lululemon does this a little bit too. They used to have all of their employees write their goals 
like their weekly goals or their yearly goals or their intentions in the dressing room. And I'd find I'd spend way longer in there trying things on because I wanted to read everything. Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> we, we would have our, we would actually have our field consultants do that. And we would, ended up early on using different aspects of social media tools. Like we would operate a Postano feed so that even people who weren't at meetings could be feeding things into the meetings and people could see them scrolling on the screens while they were waiting for a session to start. We even did it once with beauty editors where we had beauty editors meeting with us in New York and we had our consultants putting through Twitter different questions we had posed out to them, like, you know, tell us what's in your product graveyard, for instance, was one of my favorite questions. So so everybody knows what that product graveyard looks like, oh, yeah. like, right? Most of the time, it's still our medicine cabinet. It just sits in there for a long time before we actually get rid of it. Yeah. yeah. It's a drawer. It's a bin. Yep. Oh, gosh. Yeah. My mother was the worst at it. And then when the days of the membership boxes, oh my gosh, that really contributed to my product graveyard. I had to stop all of them. I want to know, because it sounds like this company really lit you up, what I call your skincare soul, so to speak. It lit you up. But So tell me, like, what was the favorite part of your day when you were immersed in the corporate world? Was there a day where you go, I cannot wait to get to work today? Well, you know, my days always started and I I have to say a lot of my, the team members hated this, but it was my favorite part of the day. I'll call it a scrum now. At the time, it was just a phone in meeting every single morning, pretty much for eight years in, you know, there were periods of time where the call might last five minutes and there were other times when the call might last an hour where it was a check-in and it was just, you know, what happened yesterday, basically? What do we all need to know this morning before we start our day? And the reason I loved it is it just, it kept my finger on the pulse of the company. I could stay connected to what was important that day. And we sort of started each day out with setting intention for what was important for the day. That's we didn't call it that. It was it. just, yeah, it was just a check-in. It was, it was basically a scrum, which is now a, a significant part of agile process in tech development, but we were applying it to our, you know, well, the tech aspects of the beauty business, but also the beauty business itself. So I, now we're going to get real because this is what women who work hard and deal with obstacles and overwhelm want to learn from people like you. And what <laughs> part of the business beat you up? The one, you know, the element that made you wonder why the heck am I here? And then I want to know how you successfully moved through these moments. Yeah. So I guess the part that probably beat me up was, and I don't know how to say it any other way than being very blunt. I eventually, as you grow and you become Marquis brand, if you will, in a certain space or a certain area, people want to come to work for you to build their resumes. And resume builders drove me crazy. There were people who came for the wrong reason. And, you know, you end up hiring a lot of people with these amazing resumes and they, they're not there with this level of purpose, of making their dent in the universe. It's more coming and building a different title. And I didn't have a lot of patience for that sort of self-promotion title builders because we were in a business model where the most important people were our consultants and their customers, and we worked for them. 
And that level of humility and tenacity that's associated with that sort of business model. Um, so oftentimes it was really this idea of that beat me up was just dealing with self-serving resume builders. Made me crazy. Still does. Are they people that just come into the business quickly, grab the title, and then find like they have an insatiable appetite for building their resume and move on? Sometimes comes with more than that. So, you know, I don't need to name names, but I mean, I've dealt with people who came in and, and this goes earlier on in my career, it happened where I had a director level reporting to me and she came to complain to me that her office wasn't big enough. And her office seemed fine to me. And she goes, well, it's not as big as the other director offices. And I go, well, this is what the company has specified as a director office. And she said, and I'm not kidding, she said, no, I counted the ceiling tiles in my office. And I have fewer ceiling tiles in my office than other director offices. And I said to her, I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. (laughs) You know, it's... But I've, I've had those kind of scenarios where people want the, the recognition, the kind of the perks that come with the, with the title, as opposed to the validation of knowing that you're creating, you're contributing, you're enhancing the lives of the people who have entrusted their skin to us or are looking to us, in many cases, for their livelihood by starting these independent businesses that are difficult. It's hard to run your own business. I'm sure I don't need to tell anybody who's listening to this. Absolutely. And if you have time to count ceiling tiles, you're probably not doing your job very well. You got it. <laughs> so I have zero patience for that. I, I hear what you're saying. Do not count ceiling tiles. Yes. <laughs> if you want to impress your boss. <laughs> oh my goodness. So you stayed with Rodan and Fields for how long? How long were you part of the company? Eight years. And it was actually a little longer than I originally intended because when we started the company, I figured, so my husband and I, I had, I had set some goals for myself and talk about goal setting. Back in 2006, I had a little voodoo doll somebody gave me they brought from New Orleans. I'm not into voodoo, black magic, anything like that. <laughs> it was a little souvenir somebody brought me from New Orleans. And with the voodoo doll, there were three colors of pins, black pins where you wish ill will on people. I threw that away. Red pins where you wish for romance or love. And I, you know, my husband's the love of my life. I didn't need anybody else to come take his place. That was for sure. The white pin is for your goals, your dreams, your hopes. You're supposed to write them down, be pretty specific, put the, the little paper with the pin into the voodoo doll. So in 2006, I wrote that by 2016, I wanted to be retired and have a home on a vineyard in California wine country and a family business. We started talking about Rodan and Fields, which we actually launched in. I joined the company and the doctors. It really wasn't even the company fully at that point in time. We were reorganizing to become an independent company again. It was late 2007. So at that point, I said, you know, I'll give this about seven years because I've committed to my husband that we're going to retire together at about this point in time. And I figured by that point you know, it, we'd have either crossed over and been very successful or 
everybody would be on to something else. And so it seemed like a good amount of time. What I didn't expect is that the company would still be growing at the rate it was growing uh, at the time I decided to step out, which made it a little bit harder of an exit than I, I would have anticipated it otherwise being. Yeah, I'm wondering how depressed they were when you said, sorry, I have to move on to my vineyard and and probably jealous that you're going out and do that. So you didn't really retire. And that's kind of what I want to circle back to is what you're doing now with your new mission. And I want to learn a little bit about it. And then if we have time, I do have a, some questions from my my gals that I think you would be the awesome person to answer. So the the lack of retirement, it started off, you know, I was invited to join a number of different boards. And so that's what I thought I would be doing for retirement. And one thing caught me off guard. And when I was going through my breast cancer treatment at the time, Christy Funk was writing her book called Breasts, the Owner's Manual. And she was giving me the galleys to read as I was going through the treatment. And the book is really generally about women's health. And a lot of it's about diet. And I'm really starting to start to look at things a little bit differently, things that I had assumed about nutrition and diet. I was, I was looking at it a little bit differently. The other book that I was handed by a, a close friend of mine was by called the, the Telomere Effect by Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn. And the book had just come out. And it was about cellular health and your health span versus your disease or your illness span, if you will, and living long and living well. And telomeres are part of your cells. There's the end of their pairs of DNA at the ends of your chromosomes that basically hold your chromosomes together. And the longer they are, hypothetically, the, the more the more effectively your cells can reproduce. And as they start to shorten, your cells lose the inability to replicate and reproduce correctly. I just watched a show on all of this the other night and how with our mind, we can actually lengthen them. That's it. That was the part that was the big aha for me. And and that was life-changing because I expected to be reading this book by this Nobel laureate about chemicals and nutrition and medicine. And about the first half of the book was about meditation and mindfulness and showing how people who manage stress, we all have stress in our lives. We can't do away with the stress, but how we deal with that stress determines what our cells look like and the length of the telomeres. And so I'm now starting to think about, okay, I prided myself in being able to get by with virtually no sleep for hustler. Yeah. (laughs) How many years? I always said, I'll sleep when I'm done. Me too. And it wasn't that I couldn't sleep. It said I didn't have time to sleep. And people would know, you know, I'd get up, at, I'd set an alarm and get up at two in the morning to finish doing some emails that I couldn't finish because I was tired. So this was my world. And, and I used to think meditation was for people who had nothing better to do with their time. And now I'm seeing this profound correlation with all of these scientific studies. I mean, I have my background in laboratory science and I'm reading these studies and I'm thinking, okay, this is undeniable. So I'm going through my breast cancer treatment. I'm starting to learn about mindfulness, different approaches to general whole wellness. And I'm talking to 
Ritu Chopra about some of his thoughts about beauty and skincare because he's American-born and educated, but from an Indian family, and his grandfather was a surgeon in India and a practitioner of Ayurvedic medicine and a lot of these more Eastern practices, and. Chopra has this real appreciation of, you know, it's not just the surgery or what you, you know, smear on your skin. It's this whole holistic integrative approach. And, you know, I'm like, yes, and meditation, who knew that meditation could make your skin look better? And, you know, all the cosmeceuticals in the world, you know, aren't going to be doing the trick if you're being treated for skin cancer, I mean, for breast cancer. And on all these drugs that reverse all the things that you did. So we started having these conversations and he said, you know, I would really, really love to take this out to the world and launch a business around it. Can you help me? And I said, you know, I've retired. I don't know if I'm up for another startup right now. And I said, but I can help you. I can, I can advise you on it. And as we started going deeper and deeper, I realized that I had to do it. Oh, your whole energy changed when you started talking about it. This is definitely a passion project for you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and fortunately, I've been able to pull together this amazing team. It's like the dream team of bringing beauty, technology, skincare, direct selling, all of I've got the best of the best who are, have joined me on this. In fact, they're sitting in the next room right now with our mindfulness partner, Dr. Kristen Race, a, a neuropsychologist who's helping us weave mindfulness practices into your beauty routine. So that's the, the meeting I just stepped out of to do this podcast. Well, tell me, like, what is the mission? Is this the, like, how can people find what you're doing right now? Give a, a URL or a website and then tell us a little yes. bit about what it all encompasses. So right now, you could find us in two places. One is a blog that we launched earlier this year just to start getting content and knowledge out there, and that's called Salvasa Life. And I'm hoping you'll put that in your show notes, but Salvasa is spelled S-O-L-V-A-S-A. And what Salvasa actually means, it's a word we've made up, and it's the word was intended to be as integrative as the product idea of this East meets West where best of Western cosmeceuticals and Eastern Ayurvedic and nutrition. Salvasa has a Western root, means soul, of sun or energy. And Vasa in Sanskrit has a meaning of vessel or house. So we kind of think of the, the name of the company as being a vessel of energy or a vessel of light. And so Salvasa Life is our blog that has a lot of, of content related to skin, body, mindfulness, And we've recently launched a podcast of our own called The Beauty Construct. And The Beauty Construct is about finding beauty through stories of wellness, resilience, and empowerment. And it's hosted by Dr. Chopra's wife, Brandi Williams, who is a Emmy-winning TV news reporter, entertainment reporter. So that's how you can find me right now. So it's the beauty construct, which is all sorts of different stories of mindfulness, different areas of skincare. And Salvasa is launching, actually, if all goes well, well, later this week, we'll, we'll actually start to potentially ship product. And we're launching with a very limited portfolio. It is a, a social selling business model, but there's a a component of mindfulness content that we'll be launching 
a little bit later, which is primarily focused on mindfulness exercises for women who have very busy full lives. Well, every woman that I know. (laughs) Who doesn't, right? Yes, exactly. So the whole idea, it's integrative beauty. And just like integrative medicine, which brings together body, mind, spirit in the context of a community, that's exactly what we are. In fact, we're calling our representatives connectors, helping people plug in. I love it. There was something I told you in the beginning. I was an oncology certified esthetician. Yes, I wanted to hear about that. Well, my clients would come in and I would literally wash their face. I would let them cry if they needed to cry. It was all that entire hour was devoted to them feeling better. And they would tell me they would leave my presence and say, Lori, I don't know what you do, but my bones don't hurt for three days after. So there is some connection that's been overlooked for too long about self-care and it's not an indulgent, it's healing, a healing process. I can tell you what you just said really resonated with me because I, um, I usually only cry when I'm happy. I rarely cry when I'm upset or angry, but the one time, the only time I really cried, well, I actually cried twice during my cancer treatment. One was a positive thing, but the second time was was it was not a positive time and it's, I went in I was just given my prescription for letrozole which is basically you know all the things you do to keep yourself looking youthful and vibrant and staving off the effects of you know the the hormonal cycles suddenly all that's wiped out cuz I'm going on this drug called letrozole that's going to flatline me on estrogen and I'm panicked about this um and so I went to get my prescription filled and they give you the opportunity to talk to the pharmacist. And I said, yes, I would like a pharmacy consultation. And I said, you know, help me through this. How do I deal with some of these side effects and the way it's going to affect my skin and my hair? And she says to me, well, maybe it won't. You just have to take the drug and see what happens. Oh, and I said, well, no, no. I said, no, really. I, aren't there any supplements or anything that I could be thinking about? And she said, and she just didn't really respond. I said, you know what? I'll wait. I'm seeing my oncologist next week. I'll talk to him about it before I start the drug. And she goes, start taking the drug. You have cancer. And it was, that's the, I stood at the pharmacy window. My husband came to pick me up. He was in the, in the drugstore and I'm standing there sobbing and I'm not a crier. And just that, you know, that lack of empathy of this is, something that's important to me and you've just dismissed it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you still want to feel beautiful and like a woman when you're going through, you know, this, this horrific assault to your health and your femininity in some ways. Yeah. Your mind, your body, your soul combined. So, Um, yeah. So, so that oncology as that aesthetics and oncology is so important. Yes, it is. It is. I found that it was really about how a woman felt when she was still investing in self-care and something to make her look and feel better. But I absolutely love, love, love what you're doing. So if I wanted to buy the products, how do I get a hold of them? So we will be launching, as I said, hopefully later this week, we're in UAT, user acceptance testing on the websites and the commerce sites. So you can find us at sylvasabeauty.com. 
And we are just starting to activate our field of connectors. And as I've told them, there are people who are out there who are looking for them. So they have to help. Their job is to help people find us. But you can find us through sylvasabeauty.com. If anybody wants to know more about the actual business and participating in the business, they could just shoot an email to connectorsupport at sylvasabeauty.com. I love and it. And we will plug you right in. And if you ever need help training your, your connectors, that's what I love to do. Like this kind, connective way of selling to people. So, and you let me know, we can have a conversation about that at a different time. Oh, for sure. And I would love for you to do one of our podcasts. Yes. Yes. I'll talk about oncology aesthetics or women yeah. taking care of themselves for sure. So let me know. Perfect subject for us. Perfect. And okay, so I'm just going to give you a few rapid fire questions because I know you have a team waiting for you. These gals were so excited to hear from you. So I know you're going to have quick answers and then I will let you get back to your day. But just one simple thing. What did you do to help Rodan and Fields grow so quickly? And how can that be translated into a small brand or a solo practitioner? You know, I'm going to use Cheryl Sandberg's term and lean in. And and the, the most important thing was to keep the true north front and center. We put together right out of the blocks a strategy map. And right at the top of that was this aspect of helping our consultants be successful in helping their customers be successful. True. Right at the very, everybody was focused on that and everything we did flowed out of that. I love it. True North front and center. <laughs> I love yeah. it. So then my, my friend Catherine, who's also in my group said it would be impossible to have growth without blank. Without purpose. Yeah. A why call it a why. Okay. And then I have a friend who is trying to take her waxing business public and she would just love to know right now what you think the best channel to offer products is. Oh, public. You mean like stock exchange just or direct just consumer, so to speak. Oh, okay. So, so yeah. So in my world, public usually means you do an IPO and you know, for, so for my perspective, the, I think the initial channel, uh, the one that's the most agile to test the water is finding the appropriate direct to consumer online connection, because there are a lot of, of different ways to connect with people there. And there are some really interesting tools that cost almost nothing to access in terms of being able to get out there. So I'll give you an example. There is an application called Talk Shop Live. It's T-A-L-K-S-H-O-P dot live, L-I-V-E, started by a brother-sister team. They're out of L.A., but basically, and the way they describe it in some ways, it's Facebook Live meets QVC with a buy now button. You can make these little videos, put them out there. People can buy right from the app. You get the data so you know who your customers are. And just an incredibly effective and inexpensive way to start connecting with people and, and selling product. I'd set up Shopify. I'd do it really simple like that. Fire some bullets, see what works. Then you could line up behind it. I also, and I'll go one more thing, I really love the idea of a bricks to clicks model. So if there's opportunities to, whether it's in a pop-up location or some other venue to start having the, the customer potential connection, but then quickly move people into a, a digital online experience. So 
that's how my friend, she ended up in Whole Foods just from working at a local in Boston, you know, like street fair or something with her skincare. So I think those two bits of advice you just gave are going to help hundreds of women and men listening. And so, oh, if you're successful online, the stores will come after you. You can do that. You can have that multi-channel approach. But what I love about the digital is just you're, you're managing the downside. So I want to thank you so much for your time. Okay. No, it's been great, Lori. Thanks for listening. I love it. Well, I I do appreciate your time. I thank you so much. I wish you loads and loads of success with your new venture because I can tell how much it means to you. And you're delightful. Thank you for having me on your show. So appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Lori. Have a great day. Thanks for joining me for today's episode of the beauty biz show. If you enjoyed the show and you would take the time to leave a kind review over on iTunes, that is very much appreciated. And if you find you are left craving more beauty biz inspiration and success tools, then you're going to want to head over to beautybizclub.com, which is the premier online success academy where talented practitioners go to maximize their potential and to become booked perfectly. Again, that is beautybizclub.com and it would be my pleasure and my honor to help you tap into your highest potential in the beauty industry. 